Hi, Hi, I'm Madeline. I'm Ian. And this is Creep Shows. Yeah, welcome. This is our first podcast. We're uh, we're officially starting off. We're doing the doctor, the cabinet of Doctor Caligari. Yeah, uh, we watched. We well, we had to watch this film twice actually to yeah. understand everything that was going on. Um, we found this video on Amazon Prime, but it is also available to watch on YouTube if you do not have Prime. So if you want to go over to YouTube and watch this one hour and six minute film real quick before finishing the rest of this episode, go do that now. Yeah, and fun fact, there are about six different versions available on Amazon Prime. So uh, the one that we watched, if anyone's curious, was the original cut. Um, there are versions added in with uh, additional sound effects and like dialogue added on top, but it doesn't really keep the tone of the original silent film. And so we stuck with that version. Uh, we decided to just go that way rather than try and confuse ourselves trying to suss out the differences between the original and the, the updated version. So if you're trying to follow along, make sure you check into one of those, the original silent version, not one of the updated shenanigans. <laughs> All right. Well, should we get into this? Yeah, I suppose so. All right, so Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. It first came out in 1920. It is a German silent film. And I found a quote from a film critic named Danny Peary that says, this was cinema's first cult film and a precursor for art house films. If that just... Okay, I could definitely know. see that. I mean, looking at, looking at how really strange it was just in general, yeah... The, the whole art house thing, I could definitely see. Um, who did you say? You said you found some information on, like, modern-day filmmakers that were inspired by this movie. Who was that? Yes. Um, so current filmmakers, such as David Lynch and Tim Burton, have both been heavily influenced by this movie. Um, I can definitely see it. Um, I personally have not watched any of David Lynch's films beside Mulholland Drive, um, which that is a trip in and of its own if you ever get the chance yeah, to watch that. Yeah, it really is. Um, but as far as Tim Burton goes, this gives me, the best I could describe it as is Corpse Bride vibes, just very dark, uh, stark white and black contrast mm -hmm. in the filming. Yeah. Um, but also just a lot of the imagery. I see how Tim Burton uh, was inspired by that. Well, the one that I really noticed uh, that really jumped out to me, because I'm sure there are plenty of other people out there that have seen this movie. I don't know if you have or not, but if you ever watched Batman Returns? Nope. The, the OG <laughs> Michael Keaton Batman movies? Uh, Danny DeVito plays the Penguin oh, in one of those movies. <laughs> and the Penguin looks almost exactly like Dr. Caligari. Like, he's got these beady little <laughs> eyes, and he's got the hook nose, and, like, that weird little, like, grimace sort of smile that he does. It, I swear Danny DeVito pulled it right from this movie. I can't picture Danny DeVito being evil. <laughs> oh, no, it's so easy. It's so easy. He's gross. All right. We'll have to watch that together. Yeah. I mean, it hardly counts as something for this podcast, but it's at least, it would be fun so you could see the distinction there. Because, for, for real, I thought for sure, I was just like, oh, my God, that is the penguin. <laughs> But no, I mean, so one of the things that I noticed a lot in the movie was the scenery. So the sets that they were making there, they were all kind of like slanted, like off color with strange like patterns painted onto them. And of course, that's obviously something to do with the expressionist uh, 
like themes of it since it's an expressionist film they're gonna have to make do with a limited set that they can have especially for the technology of filming at the time where you know they could only be in like it could only be a static camera they couldn't do camera movement so they had to treat it like a like almost like a diorama where they would build these scenes and try and make them seem larger than they are with angling them in a certain way like the uh the best, the first example that I remember seeing of it in the film was um, towards the beginning when Francis is recounting his story with Alan, how him and Alan um, went to this fair, and so you see Alan walking around in what is it, Holston Wall? I think is what it's called. Holston Wall, I yeah, Holston Wall. Um, but you see Alan walking around in Holston Wall, and the little railing that goes up to Alan's front door mm-hmm. is like, it's almost at like a 45 degree angle in two separate directions. So it's almost, almost looks like pyramidy yeah. from one side. Um, but the, um, the fair was another good example of that mm-hmm. where you'd see the fair, like the, um, it opens up on that scene with the, the guy on the organ grinder mm-hmm. with the monkey on top, just like signifying, Hey, we're at the fair. We're good yeah. to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could see like the, the path into the fair was this kind of windy angled staircase and they yeah. kept having to zigzag back and forth to kind of extend that distance. Yeah. In the background, I want to know how they made those carousels. Cause you don't see a full carousel. Maybe you notice that mm-hmm. in either corner of the screen, um, you see the top of what looks like either a carousel or a tilt a whirl spinning the entire time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, Interesting that you noticed that um, on the sets. So before watching this film, I did some independent research just on the filmmaking, um, the development of the film, stuff like that. So I found all my information from ScreenPrism, DW.com, IMDb, and good old Wikipedia. Good old Wikipedia. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, this entire film was shot in a studio. There were no exterior shots done at all. Ooh, and sense. because um, they had such limited resources and a small filming studio, all of the sets were at most six meters in width and depth. Um, hmm. So pretty small. That's really sets. interesting that you uh, that you make a point about saying that because that was one of the things that I noticed uh, in the filmmaking, especially in the scenes where it's flip flopping between the exterior and interior of Caligari's house, mm-hmm. where he keeps Cesare in the box and everything. Um, because you could see, although they were trying to mirror it, like you could see the front window was still that same sort of oblong shape. Uh, it was mirrored and it was a different size. And so though they had constraints of having to put the exterior shot mm-hmm. of that same, like actual piece of scenery, they had the constraints of having to make that a little bit smaller. And it looked like it was almost forced into a corner. Yeah. Um, when it was the inside, it was the exact opposite where it seemed very wide wherever the camera was stationed mm-hmm. and sort of narrowed back towards the uh, back towards the front door. So it was it was like from a perspective at the time, I could see how that just would have been imperceptible. People would have been like, oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, obviously, like you've seen enough camera tricks with people having to change shots within like a single dialogue scene. They're changing filming locations. Yeah. And it was just so cool to see that done so early on. <laughs> That they were taking these tricks of perception and just making a film with it. And something else I think that you'll really appreciate, Ian, um, is all of the sets were made out of paper. 
paper sets? All, paper sets and all of the shadows were painted on, which I kind of know. Yeah. Um, but a big reason why this film was actually picked up by a studio um, was the producer, Eric Palmer, made the statement um, that although the script writers saw in the film as being an experiment, he saw this as being a film he could produce for cheap. Hmm. Um, so all of the sets were constructed for less than $800, and all of the actors were paid a whopping $30 a day. Wow. Well, I mean, I guess for 1920 though, $30 a day would have been nuts. Yeah, it's actually pretty good money. Um, this entire film was created with a budget of about $18,000 at the time. Oh, wow. $18,000 in 1920. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> By chance, do we have a calculation of what that is nowadays? I I tried calculating, but you you know how I, mean, I am with would, numbers. It would be kind of wishy-washy, too, because, I mean, you would have to calculate whatever it was in German money. Yeah. And then, because, I mean, with World War One, I, I was going to say, we remember, know what German happened with German currency. <laughs> right after that. So <laughs> that would make sense. Yeah. But, okay. Well, yeah, that's pretty nuts. That's kind of a crazy budget. Yeah, and speaking of World War One, so um, this film actually came out very short after World War mm-hmm. One had ended. Yeah. And the two uh, writers of the film, I apologize to any German <laughs> listeners we have out there, um, Han Jonovitz, that's the best okay. I can I, think. I can't argue pronounce with that. I don't that. Know German. He will now be referred to as Han from now on. I'm not attempting that last name again. <laughs> and Carl Mayer. I think I got that one right. Um, but so both of them were influenced to create this film by their own experiences during World War One. Han served as an officer and his experience being on the front lines left him very jaded and embittered as I can imagine. Yeah. (laughs) And then Carl, on the other hand, he actually faked being insane Hmm. to avoid military service, which led him to intense examinations from a military psychiatrist. And that experience left him very distrustful of authority. Yeah. I was wondering throughout the entire film why they had chosen to make the bad guy, or the bad guy, the uh, antagonist of the film, I suppose is the appropriate term, why they had chosen to make him the head of what was seemingly a mental institution and why he turned out to be the sinister Mm -hmm. one. What? Kind of. We'll get into that. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense is just seeing how that guy was influenced and how, as a, what you said, he was a producer as a producer, he would have been putting that influence. Uh, He was a writer. Oh, he was a writer. Okay. That makes even more sense. And so the two writers before this had no association with the film industry and just between the winter of 1918 through 1919. So that would have been. December 1918 through okay. January 1919. Um, the two of them just holed up for six weeks and wrote the script. 
That's pretty brutal. I can't imagine writing a script like this that quickly. Yeah. Um, No, this entire film was produced very quick for the time it came out. Again, they started writing it in December of 1918, and it first hit theaters on February 26th of 1920. Wow. That is a crazy fast timeline. I mean, six weeks to write it, and then what, basically a year to produce it, edit it, get the score and then get it distributed. Yeah. That's nuts. And there was actually, um, (laughs) there were a lot of issues with the production of this film. Um, There was a conflict over who was going to direct this film because the original director was signed on to another project as well. So after this was picked up by a studio, um, there was a five-month delay before they could even start filming. It sounds like a lot of movies being made today. Yes. (laughs) It's just they can't decide who's going to make it. Well, I don't want James Gunn to make my movie anymore. (laughs) I'm just going to get someone else to do it. (laughs) I wonder if they had like the Joss Whedon of 1920s Germany (laughs) go in and just do some reshoots or something. (laughs) Uh, Did you find out anything about uh, the music, the composition for the film? Because I thought that was really interesting. Like with a lot of silent films, obviously, since they didn't have the ability to record audio as how it was appearing on screen, they had to develop, you know, either after effects where you're recording uh, some sort of sound effect and then overdubbing Mm -hmm. it and playing at the same time with a film. But more commonly, before that kind of recording technology was available, they would have just had to have had a live orchestra playing a lot of these mm-hmm. uh, these shows. At least that's what I would assume. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Don't quote me on that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you remember, I took actually a course on film music history yeah. in college. Um, so I should have known to look more into who created the music for this film. Um, I kind of dropped the ball on that area of this Um I mean, that's fine. I'm sure one day down the line, we're going to have to redo this episode anyway. We'll do it some justice then. All right. I found that the music especially helped a lot in just maintaining the tone of everything. Like you would notice that obviously when it was something that was tense or Mm -hmm. disturbing that the the music would shift to like a minor or a dissonant sort of chord. Well, and I thought too when they first started talking about the carnival, like there was a very clear shift in the music too. Maybe you noticed this, that it was very much what you would yeah, it envision was as being upbeat. carnival yeah. music. Um, yeah, I think I made a note of how like during the scene where um, Dr. Caligari wakes up, did you pronounce it Cesare? That's how I say it. I'm assuming it's, it's supposed to be Italian. Because oh, at one yeah. point in the story... Uh, later on in the film where you see uh, the protagonist, uh, Francis, going through who he thinks is Caligari's office at the mm-hmm. institution, they find a story that uh, is what Caligari ends up citing as his motivation to become this manipulative murder lord. Um, but it says that it was a, a story from like the 1200s or something. Mm-hmm. In northern Italy, there was a doctor named Caligari who... Uh, had his somnambulist Cesare there. And okay. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's the correct way to pronounce it in Italian. So okay. anybody that's Italian out there that knows anybody, please let us know because we're just a couple of 
dumb white folks <laughs> don't know any better most of the time. So we're doing our best. <sighs> we try to acknowledge our white ignorance. <laughs> yeah, among many other things. <laughs> um, oh, no, but... One thing I noticed was that the music when Dr. Caligari first wakes up, his somnambulist. I don't know how to say it. Oh, I know. That. I don't say it right either. <laughs> I just mumbled right through Som-nam- that. <laughs> when he woke up, his sleepwalker. <laughs> um, no, the music went to almost this like, correct me if I'm wrong, like Flight of the Valkyries almost. Like, <laughs> it seemed very much, uh, what's the name of the piece that was in Fantasia? It, it seems very much like that one. About. I don't remember the name of it, and it's a very famous piece. And anybody out there that loves music is going to hate me for that, so I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it sounded a lot like that, and had a similar tone. But that actually brings up an interesting point because I noticed uh, the first time through, and again, like Madeline said, we had to watch this twice to re- to really try and understand it because this one's a real mind melter. Um, but no, during the first scene where you actually see Caligari in the tent at the fair, waking up Cesare, you know, he opens the box and you just see him standing there and he's like this gaunt skeletal kind of figure. Um, and, and so that lends a lot to the tone of his character that there's not much to him. He's just kind of asleep. He kind of exists and only wakes up whenever Caligari needs Mm -hmm. him. Um, but what I found really interesting was the fact that... The first thing that you ever see for Cesare is a close-up on his face, and it's his eyes are closed when he's trying to wake up, and you see his eyebrows and his mouth twitching in such a way mm-hmm. that it's almost pain. Like, he, he conveys a sense of pain, of sadness, and when he finally opens his eyes, the first thing his eyes show is fear. And so in that moment, it kind of gives you it, it gives you an idea. It sets the tone that this this person, Cesare, he's not in control of himself. He knows that he's being controlled mm-hmm. to at least some degree because he's he's expressing this pain. He's expressing this fear and this sadness. And that can only come from a loss of freedoms, a loss mm-hmm. of autonomy that he would get otherwise. And that's kind of the sad thing about this whole story is that, you know, towards the end of the film, obviously we find out that um, the character of Caligari was obsessed with this, what is it, like a folklore, like a legend or something That's of Caligari and I... Cesare, the, the doctor and his somnambulist. He calls it, like, in the last little, um, I guess screen cap is the only way I know how to describe it, is he says, like, oh, he believes me to be the mystic Dr. Caligari, or like the yeah. mythical Mm-hmm. And something along those lines of that, yeah, this seems to be um, just some sort of mythology. Yeah, so, and, and that's exactly what makes me assume that it's some sort of folklore or something like that. Um, but just seeing that he's got the control over Cesare is what's so sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he kind of treats him like a pawn throughout the whole thing. Oh, the yeah. What confused me a little bit about the film were were the links between the motivations for the killings. Like, so the first killing that you see, well, you don't, I guess you kind of see it. Um, the first killing that we know of was, oh, what was it? The town, town clerk. clerk. That was what they called him. Um, and he was <laughs> like this this scrawny bureaucratic man. The The first thing that I noticed about the sort of series of scenes with him was that 
Caligari comes into town uh, first thing with his traveling fair, and he says that he's trying to go get a permit or something like mm-hmm. that. First thing he does is he sees what I can only assume is the town clerk's assistant or like uh, someone in the role of like a secretary or something yeah. like that. And he appears to bribe the guy to get him essentially just like an appointment with the town clerk. You see him hand over some money and the guy goes, oh, money, cool. Yeah, I'll take your card now. Mm-hmm. And so once he finally gets into the clerk's office, the clerk is this, again, like a, a tiny little man. <laughs> Sitting on like on a, a huge stool. stool. Yeah, that really stuck out to me yeah. too. And so, I mean, obviously, expressionist film, you got to give him some leeway there. You're just going to have weird angles and weird shapes all over the place. That's just how they do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in this instance, although you do see the tall stools again later with the, the soldiers or police or however you want to look at them, um, the stool with this guy was unique in that it was excessively tall and it also had like a little like foot step mm-hmm. in the middle that he had to step down onto. Yeah. And it, it seemed like, at least in my opinion, it seemed like something that was meant to be a symbolism that, you know, this tiny little bureaucratic man, all of his power is in his pen and paper. He holds himself so much higher than everyone else. That's how I took it too. I found yeah. the displacement of him being this scrawny man just up on the super tall stool and then Caligari just being like down curled up in anger um yeah it seemed yeah really it was down. it was obviously some pretty on the nose symbolism but it seemed like you know there was some sort of commentary there going on with the bureaucracy and the proceedings required to just live a normal life and have a some sort of show at the local fair mm-hmm. is always impeded by some man who thinks he's better than everyone. Yeah. So that was kind of a bummer. Yeah. But so that one made sense, right? So the the tax guy, the town clerk, whatever his name was, tax guy, uh, <laughs> the town clerk, I mean, he yells at Caligari, he says, wait. And I said, wait, you know, wait your turn, peasant, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Like he has that body language. He has that tone. And so it makes sense that that's the first person to be murdered. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes sense because that's something that Caligari wanted. We see the influence on Caligari's state of mind specifically. So that one kind of set the precedent for what I would assume would be the rules that they're making for, well, again, expressionist. You got to give him some <laughs> leeway. Uh, but the rules that they're making determining what the motivation is mm-hmm. for the murders. And so it confused me later on when we see Alan, uh, Francis, the narrator's friend, we see Alan getting murdered, mm-hmm. even though he had no interaction with Caligari. No, I think again, kind of like I was saying while we had the film paused earlier, I think Alan was only murdered because he spoke directly to Cesare and asked him for prophecy. Because he asked him, I wrote it down. Um, yeah, he asks Cesare how long he will live, mm-hmm. to which Cesare responds, like, you have until dawn. That's not ominous at all. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I guess from the motivation of, like, Caligari's brainwashing of the guy that he goes into later in his notebooks. No, I agree. It <laughs> makes sense that, okay, yeah, he's just been programmed that if you talk to him and ask mm-hmm. of a prophecy, you, he just kills you. But it, I don't know, it just seemed kind of flimsy and weird to me. I agree. Just that that's, there was, there was such a different motivation for each killing. It would have made a lot more sense if, I don't know, we got to see an example of the 
tax man, <laughs> the town clerk. I keep thinking tax man. Uh, if we got to see the town clerk getting a prophecy or something like that, mm-hmm. would have made more sense. It was just, yeah, I don't know. I'm just being nitpicky now. So, <laughs> real quick, um, just because we keep using the term, but we haven't actually talked about what expressionism is. Um, so expressionism was a big creative movement that started in World War One and went through the 1920s. Um, it's a visual style that's supposed to represent both the characters and the world itself being out of joint and just kind of displaced from reality. And then the other like main point I found was that expressionist works examine both their current and future culture. Um, through their artistic expressions. So the topics often explored madness, betrayal, and other intellectual concepts like that. Um, And something that was just interesting to me is because Germany became so isolated after World War I from pretty much the rest of the world, um, expressionism really became confined to Germany post-World War I. Um, And so this film is considered to be the definitive piece of German expressionism um, and is often considered to be the height of the movement in cinema. So that's why we keep throwing that term around to describe (laughs) this film. Yeah, it's it's really hard to just pigeonhole expressionism into something that's easily defined because it's really not. That's pretty succinct what you just went over. Uh, thank you. That came from Wikipedia as well. <laughs> awesome. Good job, Wikipedia. Thanks. <laughs> I cannot take credit for that. <laughs> I mean, you can. <laughs> I don't know if it's the right thing to do, but you can. <laughs> so with the story itself, so there's a bit of a twist right at the end that, honestly, we're still pretty confused about. We don't fully understand it yet. Um, But the twist at the end is once you see uh, the narrator, Francis, he leads all of what I can only assume are like orderlies or something at this mental institution. He leads all these orderlies up to, or other other doctors or something like that. They're never defined, so we just have to guess. Um, But he leads these people up to Caligari's office, who is discovered to be the head of this institution. Uh, They find all these notes that he's idolized the story of Dr. Caligari and Cesare uh, that was told from the 1200s, some sort of story where they're passing through northern Italy. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's like this weird sort of flashback to where... He's recounting the first time that he actually saw the somnambulist Cesare uh, show up in his institution. And he exclaims, yes, yes, finally, I've, I've got one that I can test this theory on to see if Dr. Caligari could actually program someone to commit murders through no will of their own and have them not remember. And so that ends up being the sinister goal that he that is explained that he's had this whole time, why these murders come about. Uh, and then he runs out into the street and Caligari just pops up all over the screen everywhere. It's a trip. Yeah, yeah. He really loses his shit. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty cool, like, uh, overlay because they were doing, like, actual print, like, word print over top of the film. So I would assume that they would have had to have mm-hmm. just literally painted onto 
like the individual frames or something like yeah. that. Because there's there was no such thing as special effects no, at the time where they could have added in that kind of audio effect. Yeah. Or audio effect. <laughs> that kind of visual effect. effect. It's the opposite of audio. <laughs> if you're trying to visualize this, though, it kind of looks like somebody just figured out how to use PowerPoint for the first time mm-hmm. and is using the fly-in. <laughs> yeah. Effect. Yeah, it looked like a George Lucas transition for sure. Where it's just like the, the cheesy boop wipe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Caligari. But I Caligari. mean it makes sense. Again, they had yeah. limited technologies at the time. Uh I saw a lot of the, the camera movements on that referred to as irising, mm. where it would like close into the circle or open out from a circle. It's like the iris of your eye. Yeah. So that makes sense. Yeah. That's like the kind of transition. No, this was created literally a hundred years ago i'm just being a dick (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's true you are being a dick but hey that's half the fun right (laughs) um so i talked a little bit about what inspired the filmmakers through their own personal experiences um to create this film um but something else i found that while I couldn't find much credibility to it, I still think is a fun story and possibility as to how this film was inspired. So our good old friend Han that I mentioned earlier, the one who served as an officer during World War I, he believed he witnessed a murder in 1913 at a carnival um, at an amusement park he went to. So... As Han was at this carnival, he saw a young woman disappear into the bushes, and a few minutes later, a respectable-looking man emerged. The next day, though, Han learned that the girl had been brutally murdered, and when he attended the funeral, he saw the same respectable, well-dressed-looking man kind of just lurking off to the side. And even though he had no proof that this man was responsible for the murder— He just kind of fleshed out this whole idea into the film of Dr. Caligari. That's pretty terrifying. Oh, yeah. No, that's horrifying, actually. I can imagine having nightmares for the rest of my life because of that. (laughs) Yeah. However, again, there isn't much credibility to that story. Um, I also read a bunch that Han and Carl were mainly just trying to write a story. This was the wording I found um, to denounce arbitrary authority as brutal and insane, Um, which I can kind of see that reflected out in Caligari ending up being this authoritative figure in what we're presuming is a mental institution of some sort. Um. Well, and I mean, and it makes sense too, because just the fact that he's controlling Cesare with this uh, presumably subconscious influence or something like that, uh, you know, that's him exerting his power over someone. And though he's not doing it physically, it's definitely a brutish sort of tactic to use where you're just mm-hmm. fully in control of someone's existence. Yeah. Makes sense. And it, neither of the writers said until about a few decades later that they had any political intentions when writing the script. Um, they held pretty firm, firmly that they actually did not have political intentions going into it. It's believed that maybe later upon reflecting how the film was perceived that that was when they first started seeing it as something political. 
Um, but Han said after the film was released that he realized, and this is a direct quote from him, he realized exposing the authoritative power of an inhuman state was the subconscious intention of the writers. Um, so kind of like you're saying, yeah, Dr. Caligari having this control over Cesare to commit murders, um, horrible atrocity is, it is, it's just arbitrary and it's brutal because there's no real rhyme or reason that we see behind it and we also don't really see either um how Caligari has gotten his control over Cesare so that's what I'm most interested in still is just how he was able to control him um to that point yeah that would be an interesting thing to see but I think it also begs the question is you know was any of that real or not because right at the end of the film, after we find out everything that Caligari has been doing, all of his reasoning, all of his intentions behind it, the next thing that you see after the scene, after the shot where they put Caligari in his own cell in a straitjacket. Mm-hmm. After we see Chessere dead, too. That's the other thing. Sorry for just throwing that in there. Um, towards the end of the film, it there's a little screen cap again saying that the sleeper has been found dead in the ravine and they bring in Cesare's body to Caligari and that's when they put him in a straitjacket and throw him in a cell. Yeah, because he loses his shit and tries to strangle one of the other guys. Yeah. Yeah, and so it gets confusing because immediately after that, they he strangles the, the other doctor, orderly, whatever he is, uh, gets put in a straitjacket by half a dozen guys, thrown into a cell, and then the last thing you see is the iris fade out on Francis, just leaning up against the wall, looking kind of sad. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that, it opens back up to what was the opening scene, which is Francis sitting on a bench next to an old guy in some sort of courtyard somewhere. Uh, and we come to find, because they get up and start walking, we come to find that this courtyard is in that same institution, it's you know presumably connected to the set piece that you see with uh, with all like the lines on the floor in the three archways and mm-hmm. stuff like that because they just transfer one scene to the next and they're there. Um, but in that scene, he's walking along with the old guy who, from the start of the film, you assume that it's the old person that's the crazy one because he looks kind of aloof in the beginning. He's kind of mm-hmm. out there and he has this really strange thing that he says that he opens up the film with, oh, something yeah, about spirits. Um, I, I wrote it down. He said, "Spirits surround us on every side. They have driven me from hearth and home, from wife and child." And so that that gives you the impression that he's the crazy one. Looking at it now, uh, you, that could be taken a lot of different ways. <laughs> They're both crazy. They're both crazy. Honestly, I think it's probably something to do with World War One. That would make mm-hmm. the most sense in the timeline. Mm-hmm. Or uh, sociopolitical things in Germany that I don't have enough understanding about to actually talk competently on. So I'll just avoid that subject entirely. <laughs> um, but So you're, you're made to assume that this old guy is the crazy one. And Francis is just telling him the story of, oh, you think your life's crazy. Check this shit. Uh, but you come to find out at the end, after he's told his story, that it's actually Francis who appears to be the crazy one, because they're walking through this courtyard with all the other patients, and you see Cesare leaning up against a wall, playing with some sort of flower. 
Mm-hmm. It's like a flower or a paper mache flower or something like that. But he's, he's playing with something. His own business. Yeah, he's just doing a thing. He's just up on a wall hanging out. Um, and Francis goes, "Oh, there's Cesare now. Don't go over there. Uh, if he if he gives you prophecy, you'll die." And the old man turns and looks at him, visibly confused, and just walks away, just just kind of scared, kind of confused, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so in that moment, it kind of turns the narrative on its head, where. You know, this was a film that was a story of a madman and a murderer. But now what it seems like is none of that stuff actually happened because you see Francis looking disheveled and confused and kind of has like that that crazy, wily smile. And he walks over to Jane, who we had seen many times throughout the film before up to yeah. this point. I don't think we've mentioned her yet in this. Um, Jane... No discernible personality, um, as mean as that sounds. But and she is referred to as his betrothed in the very opening scene. Yes. Um, she, and what we see that we think are flashbacks, which again may or may not have actually happened, she is um, a love interest and sought after by both Francis and his friend Alan, who we see murdered. And something I found interesting is the last thing we see Francis say to Alan is something along the lines of, we are both in love with her, but I hope we can remain friends after she picks one of us. Yeah, and that's that's what initially made me start questioning what the motives were behind the killings, because the first one was a personal offense to Caligari, but it made the second one, Alan's killing, seem more like it was you know, something that might have been Francis. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Well, that's what I was thinking. Like, as soon yeah. as Alan was dead, I was just like, oh, cool. Francis is in the clear to have a shot at Jane. Yeah. And so I wonder if it turns out that this entire story of Dr. Caligari was Francis's justification that landed him in this institution mm-hmm. saying, oh, it was another person that killed Alan. It wasn't me, but it was actually him mm-hmm. trying to kill Alan to get with Jane. But the, it, it gets very yeah. confusing because Jane's also in the institution as well. She thinks she's a princess. She says something along the lines of, uh, Francis goes up and asks her right after the, the old guy walks away confused. He walks up and asks her, you know, oh, Jane, when will you marry me? And she just kind of looks at him uh, kind of with a distant look in her eyes and says something about, oh, those of us with royal blood can't follow the desires of our heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I swear, there's a lot more like sociopolitical commentary going on there that, again, we just that don't know we enough don't about. Understand? Um, yeah. But that's got to be it. It makes the most sense. Yeah, and then we see Jane almost become Chesare's third victim. Um, we see him break into her room and abduct her from her bed, which actually, when this film first came out, so we haven't really mentioned this, um, this film came out before the genre of horror was really acknowledged or even established. So a lot of people think this was the first horror film created. Um, the scene where Chessere comes into Jane's bedroom and snatches her out of her bed was so shocking at the time that women were literally fainting in the theater. (laughs) Yeah. That's pretty crazy. (laughs) Well, I don't know. That one was a little weird to me because you see him slink up the side of the house and he's standing outside the big window Mm -hmm. uh, and he pulls out the chunk of the window so he can get inside and he's got a knife in his hand. Mm -hmm. What I didn't understand is why... uh, 
the he didn't use the knife. You know, he's got this knife in his hand. Why did he bring it with him if he's just going to go in there, grab her, fight back with, a, again, like a wild look in his eyes, Honestly, and then just kidnap her yeah. and take her away? I that think, part was kind of weird. I think it was to show that maybe it was the same person who had murdered Alan the night before, because all we see from Alan being murdered is a shadow of a man approaching his bed with a knife. We see Alan kind of like scream and like coil up and quiver and then the last thing we see is just a shadow of a knife yeah i guess that makes sense just tonally trying to match them up yeah but he was talking about um chesare entering into her room something i noticed throughout the film which maybe you did too is like, I'm still not sure if Chessere was supposed to actually be a human or not, just because on his face, you know, they did makeup on him um, so that he had very just defined features, but then they made his eyes, I don't know how to describe it, like, there's just all the dark makeup underneath his eyes and around them, but what I really noticed was his body... And they put him in all black clothing, which they didn't with anyone else. And it seemed to me like, especially in the scene of him approaching Jane's bedroom, because you can see he's physically like elongating himself. Mm -hmm. um, It seemed very intentional to me that they put him in black clothing to give him just kind of the appearance that he was a slim, just unhuman figure. Like, yeah, he kind of looks I, like I can definitely see I, I definitely remembered seeing that in the film and making a mental note of it because you're right. Like, and especially the way he moves, he's almost mm-hmm. like a dancer. Yeah. It's very fluid and purposeful. Uh, and nobody else moves like that. Everyone's just kind of casual. You know, Caligari kind of just stumbles around like a fat schlub because he's, an old he's meant to be, you know? Yeah. <laughs> he's an old curmudgeon. Um, <laughs> But yeah, like, and I had some ideas for a while that, you know, maybe the white face paint was meant to be something important, but mm-hmm. no, I think it was just a limitation of the technology at the time. They needed to have bright contrast because mm-hmm. they only had black and white. So you couldn't do muted colors or anything like that. You wouldn't get enough of a contrast in the shot for it to actually show up. And so they would have had to have done just straight black or straight white in order to get a good picture on the screen. Um, but yeah, like his, his skinny, like sort of gaunt figure. That's what I was thinking too. And especially with the makeup that made it look like he had sunken eyes. Okay, I would have imagined that like, especially nowadays with CGI, somebody could have done a wonderful job with that. Uh, and I think it really comes down to just a limitation of the medium at the time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I was always under the impression that he was meant to be like this kind of almost like a. Like a walking corpse. Yeah. That that kind of idea. Yeah. The way he moves reminds me very much of um, kind of just how zombies are portrayed. You yeah. Know, kind movement. of shambling and not very coordinated. Yeah. Because he too, like, he wasn't obviously, gave me like Frankenstein, but not quite Frankenstein. <laughs> no, I get what you're too. saying. Because... They they did have a very similar, like, almost staccato sort of movement yeah. where they would take a very purposeful movement and then just kind of let their body lurch <laughs> towards whatever their goal mm-hmm. was. Yeah, I could see that. So one thing that we've 
been trying to make a point of in choosing what kind of films that we watch is that we don't want overt propaganda films. We don't want to watch things that are spooky for the sake of, you know, one particular agenda of any group. Um, But in this case, obviously, the elephant in the room here being that this is a 1920s German film are Nazis. You know, everybody knows real shitty stuff. Um, But so tell us, obviously, at the time, you know, Jewish creators were being pushed out more and more from German cinema. That's something that we found out through our research. Mm-hmm. Um, but tell us about what you found for this particular film. You know, was there a lot of influence from who would end up becoming Nazis later on? Mm-hmm. Like, what what was the kind of story that you found there? Sure. Okay. Um, so first, I'll start off with our director Robert Vine. Vine. What is that? Uh, Vina. Vine. Yeah. Pretty, pretty sure it's Vina. Sorry if Vina. we say that wrong. Again, we don't uh, know German. Robert, W-I-E-N-E. If any of you out there speak German, please email or tweet at us and Or maybe we'll just do me. better research next time. That too. I can do better research. <laughs> um, <laughs> the director of this film, though, so Dr. Caligari is his most known film, Um However, he was Jewish, so he actually did have to go into exile um, in the early 1930s. Oh, shit. As soon as the Nazi party rose to power, um, and he spent the rest of his days in exile in France, where he ultimately died in 1938. Um, So him, as well as a few other major actors in this film had to go into exile when the Nazi party rose. However, the other half um, joined up with Hitler. I don't know how to word it better than that. So I can just give you a quick rundown of who some of these actors were um, and then some theories that have been made about this film. And its relation to the Nazi party. So Werner Krauss played Dr. Caligari. He was 35 years old at the time of filming, which honestly just gives credit to the makeup artist at the time because he looks like an old curmudgeon in it. Um, He was often cast as villains or unpleasant characters, which if you watch the film, it's not surprising. He does a good job at it, but he became a very controversial person because Hitler actually rated him as a cultural ambassador of Nazi Germany. Yeah. Yikes. And not a, not a great uh, role to want to have in the future. Yes. No, he was very outspoken about supporting Hitler and the ideology of the Nazi party. So that's not great. However, on the other hand, Conrad Veidt played Cesare. Um, He was of German descent, um, and he was known in German theatrical circles as being a staunch anti-Nazi. However, his activities came under scrutiny of the Gestapo, and a hit was put out on him. So he had to flee Germany to Hollywood. That's where he ended up. Wow. Um, before the Nazi death 
death squad found him. Um, yeah, no, it's, I can't even imagine. He found out there was this hit on him and fled as fast as he could. Good for him. Having some, having some friends that told him there was a Gestapo hit put out. Yeah. And then our two other main actors. So we have Friedrich Feher, who played Francis. Um, he was born in Austria and died in Germany. Um, his film career kind of came to an end in 1933 because he was Jewish and was no longer able to find work in Germany. So he fled to England and then ultimately ended up in America. However, later in life, he did go back to Germany. Um, right after World War II ended, he went back to Germany and that was where he passed away. And then our last actress is Lil Dagover. She played Miss Jane Olsen. Again, Dr. Caligari was her most known film. Um, she tried to refrain from being in any films that were outright political um, and didn't make any political stances of her own. However, she was known to be one of Hitler's favorite film actresses. What a way to be remembered, right? Yikes. <laughs> Um, and she was known to have been a dinner guest of Hitler on several several occasions. So again, even though she wasn't outright a Nazi, she still liked to dine with them. So take that how you want. <laughs> yeah, uh, not great. Yeah. But. Lastly, on this subject, I just have a couple of theories. Um, so... Uh, a book was published in the early 20th century. Um, I couldn't find when it was originally published in German, um, but it was first translated to English in 1947. It's called From Caligari to Hitler. And the main thesis of it is that in the early 1920s, um, directors such as Robert Vine and other screenwriters had anticipated the rise of National Socialist. So films like Caligari laid out Nazi characters and methodology. However, parts of this thesis were later con contradicted when looking at other films that came out at the same time. Um, but writers and scholars have argued that the film reflects a subconscious need in German society for a tyrant and is an example of Germany's obedience to authority and unwillingness to rebel against deranged authority, which I thought was really interesting, but also kind of insulting to Germans. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty, pretty damn insulting. Well, I, I hope that any Germans listening know that we don't feel that way about you. We love you guys. Yes. <laughs> not, not the Nazis. No, say, no, those are bad. As but, long you know, as you're not a Germans, Nazi, you guys we cool. love you. <laughs> yeah. That's a big deal lately. Um, don't be a shitbag, please. <laughs> Anybody who's listening, just don't be shit. Yeah. Just be nice to your fellow human. Yeah, don't try and, you know, subconsciously influence them to murder people and sleep in a box for 25 years at a time, <laughs> like Dr. Caligari did. And don't do any of the, the shady shit that other people making this film did. Yeah. That's a good plan. Yeah, don't, don't hang out with the Nazis and don't be the kind of person that makes other people have to go into hiding. Yeah, that's pretty bad. The only other stuff I have, if anyone is interested in this, if you're still listening, um, is when the movie was released. So the 
film premiered in Berlin on February 26, 1920, less than one month after production wrapped. It ran for four weeks and then returned two weeks later and ran for another four weeks, which at the time was very long for a film to run in theaters. The film first premiered in New York City on April 3rd, 1921, and was supposed to premiere at the Miller's Theater in L.A. on May 7th, 1921. However, the theater was forced to pull the film due to protest, and this was also really interesting to me. Um, The protest was organized by the Los Angeles branch of the American Legion due to fears of unemployment stemming from the import of German films into America. So the film being protested had nothing to do with the actual content of the film. Um, It was just people were scared that immigrants were going to steal their jobs. Wow, here we are 100 years later and people are still complaining about the same things. Look how far we've come. Not at all. We are doing great. <laughs> um, <laughs> Gotta be sarcastic, otherwise it hurts too much. Eventually, the film did make it into large commercial theaters around the countries and around, sorry, countries, around the country um, and eventually made it into smaller theaters in smaller cities. The film overall had a better response in major cities than in smaller, more conservative communities. Um, and I don't really know how well it did in theaters, um, just because box office figures were not published in the 1920s. So it's hard to assess what the commercial success of the film was because that data was not provided like it is today. Makes sense. I mean, obviously, it'd be hard to track that kind of thing back then. But, I mean, yeah, that that pretty much wraps up everything that we've got for this one. Um, Nothing else you want to add? No, I think I've about covered it all, probably more than most of you cared to learn. (laughs) Eh, Don't assume that. There's only one way to find out. Um, So thank you for everyone who stuck around with us so far. Um, In case it wasn't obvious, this is our first outing at a podcast. Uh, If the audio sounded a little bit weird, we're doing the best we can. We currently have one microphone. We're trying to switch between the two of us. So if it sounded a little quiet or a little weird at some points, sorry. Uh, We're getting some actual hardware coming up in the next week or two. So we should have a lot better sound quality and consistent volumes on this moving forward. Um, But one of the things that uh, Madeline had mentioned earlier was that Dr. Caligari, this film, had influenced other filmmakers. We talked about Tim Burton and how Caligari looks like the penguin to me. But the other filmmaker that she mentioned was David Lynch. And so we decided that for next week, we are going to watch David Lynch's film Eraserhead. So for anyone that's never seen it before, definitely watch it. Yeah, we've never seen it. Uh, Definitely watch it. We're going to. It's going to be a wild ride. And we're going to see if anything cool happened. And... I don't know if it's just too weird for us to get into. Uh, Personally, we're going to pull that up on HBO Max because we did just get our subscription for that. So you can definitely find Eraserhead on there. There may be some alternate resources where you can check it out as well, just depending on what country you're in and what you've got available to you. But that's us next week. So come back and see us for Eraserhead. 
Thank you so much for listening to our first episode. I want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has already followed us on Spotify and has been following us on Twitter. Um, I know it's taken us a few weeks to get any content out there. My word of advice is don't try to move in the middle of starting a podcast. I learned that the hard way, Um, but hopefully we will start being much more active on social media now that we have episodes out there. And speaking of social media, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at creepshowspod. And you can find our website at creepshows.weebly.com. Lastly, you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, we request that you please leave a five-star review as it will help us get more followers. Thank you. Have a great week. Bye.